0: the marriage of one woman caused chaos in the cabinet of an American president? Find out in this episode of Footnoting History, all about Margaret Eaton and the so-called petticoat affair. Hello everyone, Christine here. Last year, we received an email from a listener Named Marietta. Hello, Marietta. I hope you are listening. That email asked that we do an episode on the Petticoat Affair, an event that is often seen as a footnote today, but certainly wasn't as it was happening. Just a quick reminder before we jump into this messiness, because it is one messy, chaotic topic. If you'd like a captioned version of this or any of our episodes, you can find it at footnotinghistory.com and or youtube.com slash history Wherever you listen to us, if you have the chance, please like or subscribe. It helps give us a boost and we really appreciate it. So the petticoat affair nowadays is often more likely to be called the Eaton affair as it's centered around one particular couple, Margaret and John Henry Eaton. The term petticoat affair comes from the scandal's origins in the interactions of women in, quote, good society in the United States capital of Washington at the end of the 1820s into the early 1830s. As you're about to see, nothing here is simple. Even today, its legacy is debated and interpretations vary. Let's begin with the center of this story, Margaret Eaton. Although you will regularly see her called Peggy in publications, even modern ones, she insisted that she was actually always called Margaret. So we are going to abide by that. Margaret was born Margaret O'Neill at the tail end of the 1790s to William and Rhoda O'Neill, who rose to prominence as owners of an inn slash boarding house that became known as Franklin House. She was educated and noted for her friendliness and good conversation by the family's patrons. But also, she was known, as she grew older, for her physical appearance and vivacious personality. The boarders and guests who once saw her as an adorably fun child began to see her as a potential object of their affection and definite object of their lust. A lot of people who stayed at the family's establishment were either established or up-and-coming politicians. In the early 1800s, Washington was very much still growing into itself, and part of that included that a great many politicians didn't have residences in the Capitol. So, places like Franklin House became central to the federal political world, and those who stayed there got to know the O'Neills and their frequently present daughter, Margaret. As soon as she became old enough to have one, Margaret's personal life took dramatic turns. When she was still a young teen, she had two almost elopements, and at one point, her family sent her to New York for finishing school to prevent further romantic episodes. Not long after she returned from that brief excursion, she met John Timberlake, a purser for the Navy. This basically means he had approved commercial dealings with specific ships and made money from selling items to the people aboard. This time, Margaret didn't try to elope. But in 1816, when she was roughly 16 years old, she married him. Over the next several years, the couple had three children. One, who passed away as an infant, and two, Mary Virginia, known as Ginger, and Margaret, who lived to adulthood. However, Financial troubles plagued the family. Luckily, Margaret, John, and her parents had a friend they could count on to help them. That friend was John Henry Eaton. Born in 1790, John Henry was the son of a carriage maker and assemblyman in North Carolina. He studied law and moved to Tennessee where he was part of the class that owned land and enslaved people as he inherited a profit-turning estate from a relative. Rather than dedicate his entire life to the management of the estate, John Henry continued on with other ventures. He practiced law and entered into politics, eventually becoming a United States senator representing his adopted home state. He was also a young widower. His first wife, Myra, passed away after a not-too-long marriage that produced no children. Myra, it must be pointed out, was the ward of a man named Andrew Jackson, with whom John Henry was politically aligned. Some may know his name because he was a U.S. president. At this point in our story, he's on the rise to that position. He was also one of John Henry's besties and a frequent patron of the establishment owned by Margaret's family. John Henry Eaton also liked to stay at the boarding house owned by Margaret's family. While there, he befriended Margaret's father, at one point helping him navigate through his financial woes. Her husband, he helped John Timberlake find work on ships again, which took the man out to sea for long periods of time, and Margaret herself. With her husband often now busy on ships, John Henry was able to spend a lot of time with her. They appeared very cozy. As you would expect, this caused whispers to begin were Margaret and John Henry lovers? Well, the fact that the two were constantly in each other's company, even in public, certainly caused the rumor mill to think so. In 1828, word reached Margaret that her husband passed away aboard the ship where he was currently employed. Although pulmonary disease was given for his cause of death, the gossip world immediately began whispering that, in fact, Margaret's husband had died by suicide as a result of his despair over his wife's alleged infidelity. The flames of scandal and societal indignation were stoked even higher when Margaret married John Henry Eaton on January 1, 1829, mere months after the death of her first husband. Folks around Washington already considered Margaret a woman not fit for so-called proper society. She was the daughter of a tavern keeper with a social record that labeled her promiscuous. Now, she was remarried without even pretending to maintain the proper society-approved mourning period, which would have involved a year or more of behavior like wearing black and being withdrawn from social events, or at the absolute minimum, not getting immediately remarried. The bar was low. Margaret and John weren't stupid, though they knew what they were doing was against the grain. It's possible that if they were intending on living a quiet life, there would be no scandal for us to talk about today. Margaret would still have been slighted by so-called polite society, but she would not have been seen as a social climber of the wrong sort. The main problem as I see it, and I think most of the historians whose work I've read on this topic would agree, even if they don't all explicitly state it, is that they weren't going to live a quiet life. John Henry Eaton's friendship and political allyship with Andrew Jackson was about to be taken to the next level. You see, Andrew Jackson had been elected president and was set to take office in early 1829. Jackson's election was one of the people. It was a massive popular vote win, and many felt like he was going to come in and shake up the Washington establishment. Jackson was in his 60s when he became president. He was considered a war hero by many due to his victory at the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812 against the British. He was also cheered by some for his anti-Native American brutality. I'm going to be completely honest here. I don't like talking about Andrew Jackson. I find so much of what he did upsetting, but also he is a central character in this, and these are indeed contributions to how he got elected. Those who voted for this change were, of course, thrilled that a Jackson administration was coming in, even if they weren't exactly sure how it would pan out. The Washington establishment, though, was thinking, oh, no, you know, here's this crass and classless guy coming out of Tennessee. He was known for having one heck of a temper and a sensitivity to perceived slights of honor that made him want to challenge everyone and their brother to duels. The establishment that Jackson was against was bracing for impact. John Henry Eaton, as one of his greatest champions and closest associates, supported him and was part of his entourage. This made his marriage a liability. Jackson personally loved Margaret. He had, after all, stayed at her family's boarding house and viewed her as a woman of virtue. He gave his stamp of approval to their marriage happily, truly encouraging it, and proceeded to assign John Henry to a role on his cabinet as Secretary of War. What came next was over two years of social and political chaos that was so messy. Margaret Eaton already had a lot of people dislike her. Yes, it was largely due to the allegations of her sexual dalliances and flouting of society's accepted rules for female mourning. But it was her basic personality, too. People didn't know what to do with her. She wasn't good at being a wallflower or playing by the rules. If someone offended her, she did not wait for her husband to take up the cause in her name. She confronted them directly. She talked too loudly. She used words like damned. She was too friendly and forward with men. People didn't approve of her before, but they really didn't approve of her once she was elevated to the role of cabinet wife, which I suppose you could call the Jackson administration aristocracy. The woman of this Jackson administration aristocracy led the charge against Margaret. It wasn't just the anti-Jackson lot that thought she was not classy enough for elevation. The women in his own group felt this way too. The wife of Vice President John C. Calhoun made her big statement by refusing to spend time in Washington and instead retiring to the family home. She claimed to be doing so because she was tending to her family and other domestic duties but her absence was also interpreted as a quiet protest. Many of the cabinet wives wanted nothing to do with Margaret. In addition to refusing to include Margaret in a flurry of paying calls to one another, this signaled social acceptance, they snubbed her at the inauguration, refused to attend events with her unless it was absolutely required, and participated in circulating all the rumors about who she slept with and when and who was involved in what. In my mind... The most significant snubbing came from one person in particular, a woman named Emily Donaldson. Here's why she was important. New President Andrew Jackson was a widower, as his wife Rachel had passed away shortly before he took office. More on that soon. He was well aware that he needed someone to act as hostess, filling what we today would call the first lady role. For that, he'd turn to Emily, who was his niece through Rachel's side of the family. She was married. Her husband, Andrew Jackson Donaldson, was her biological cousin and Andrew Jackson's ward. The couple moved to Washington with the new president so that she could fulfill that role. She did this well and people liked her, but she also had her own mind. And her own mind told her that she was going to join the women who snubbed Margaret Eaton whether her uncle liked it or not. Her position was one of influence, and when she took a side, people noticed. Rejection of Margaret spread throughout Washington to people who had perhaps been good to her once. As the situation evolved and more and more people snubbed her, it became a matter less of believing the gossip, like that maybe her first husband died because of her infidelities, or that she'd had a secret miscarriage of John Henry Eaton's child while she was still married to Timberlake. And it was more a matter of people wanting to save their own reputations. To associate with Margaret Eaton was to know that you, too, would likely become a social outcast. As you would expect, the Eatons were really not pleased with this. But someone else was possibly even more outraged. President Andrew Jackson. He took everything that happened to the Eatons regarding Margaret's position as a social pariah to heart because it reminded him of his own life. When the late Mrs. Jackson, that's Rachel, met Andrew Jackson, she was married to a man named Louis Robards. Her relationship with Robards was all sorts of toxic and eventually ended, at least outwardly. It has long been alleged that when she married Andrew Jackson as her second husband, she was still married to Robards. Indeed, the White House website even declares that, quote, Andrew Jackson married her in 1791, and after two happy years, they learned to their dismay that Robards had not obtained a divorce, only permission to file for one. I have, however, also found some Jackson biographers who claim there was no initial marriage. Either way, the couple clearly lived as though they were legitimately together before their truly legal marriage. That eventually did take place in 1794, once a divorce from Robards was obtained. Regardless of how the situation was cleanly tied up, they would be associated with words like affair and bigamy forever. Later, when Jackson ran for the presidency, Rachel was brutally smeared with a hate campaign about her character. She passed away months before her husband took office, and he was utterly convinced that her treatment during the campaign was why he lost her. As a result, Witnessing the collective snubbing of Margaret sent him into a tailspin. He became obsessed with forcing people to accept her. If you didn't, he began to reason, you were against him too. This, by the way, included his family. The president locked horns with Emily Donaldson over her refusal to change her position on Margaret. Eventually, they reached an impasse. Andrew didn't want her serving as his hostess until she changed her mind, which wasn't on her agenda, So she and her husband took time away from Washington. Andrew's involvement in the situation didn't do anything to make it better. In truth, it probably made it worse. The conflict continually took on new shapes, with blame for its cause becoming increasingly political. There was no doubt that the president's implication that you were either with him and the Eatons or against him was true. Andrew Jackson valued loyalty above all else. John Henry had been utterly loyal, so he was rewarded with a cabinet position. To dislike the Eatons, in Andrew's mind, was to be disloyal to himself. It was a problem. At one point, the president believed the whole thing was the brainchild of his old political rival, Henry Clay. Then later, the focus shifted to it being split among his own followers. Secretary of State Martin Van Buren had no wife, and so no woman embroiled in the social freeze. He went to great pains to be on the pro-Eaton, and therefore pro-Jackson, side. It caused many to believe that he was making a play to be Jackson's eventual successor, unseating the original likely candidate Vice President Calhoun, who became seen as the leader of the anti-Eaton group, even though he and his wife were physically almost never there. Some historians argue that perhaps the biggest impact of this whole debacle is that it did shift Martin Van Buren's political future. He eventually became not only Vice President, but also President. At one point, former President John Quincy Adams, who was no fan of Jackson, noted in his diary that Martin Van Buren was, quote, notoriously engaged in canvassing for the presidency by paying his court to Mrs. Eaton. He uses personal influence with the wives of his partisans to prevail upon them to countenance this woman by visiting her. He goes on to say that it is alleged that Van Buren got a meeting with Emily Donison and, quote, for three quarters of an hour, urged her with pathetic eloquence to visit Mrs. Eaton. If you're thinking, wow, this sounds like a bunch of high school drama with a teacher trying to force friendships right now, you aren't wrong. There are a few events amidst this chaos that are particularly interesting and significant. Ezra Stiles Eli of Philadelphia, the pastor of a Presbyterian church, wrote President Jackson a scathing letter about Margaret. It boiled down to a list of all Margaret's alleged transgressions and a warning that it was a bad look for Andrew Jackson to keep supporting her. This kicked off a lot of emotions. Margaret, unfortunately leaning into the assertions that she was not acting like a proper woman, though I don't blame her for this at all, went over and lambasted the man. She would later say that she got him to admit everything he claimed was hearsay and that he got part of it from Reverend John N. Campbell of the very Presbyterian church that Andrew Jackson attended. Again, so messy. Then in September of 1829, President Jackson held a cabinet meeting where he confronted everyone about Margaret and got so worked up that he claimed Margaret Eaton was as chaste as a virgin. No one changed their opinions. The president threatened multiple times that if people didn't accept Margaret, they would eventually be fired. For a while, the threat was empty and things kept boiling along. But by early 1831, it came to fruition. Though technically people weren't fired, they resigned. It began with Van Buren, who hoped, in part, to gain favor with the president by stepping down from his post which would help end the chaos and pave the way for a reorganization of the cabinet. After conferring, John Henry Eaton decided to resign first. After all, if he was no longer on the cabinet, Margaret was no longer a cabinet wife. The president then approached the opposing cabinet members, who were anti-Eaton and pro-Calhoun. As an aside, Calhoun by now had other issues with Jackson as well. So getting rid of his supporters would not just end the scandal, but it would help him get rid of men supporting the vice president he no longer liked for other political reasons. Anyway, it's not like anyone had changed their positions and Andrew Jackson wasn't about to let the opposition do a victory lap of keeping their spots. They were not happy about it, but they left. Only one person was allowed to remain. Postmaster General William T. Barry, who, of course was pro-President and pro-Eaton's. In the aftermath, John Henry Eaton, now still friendly with the President, but no longer at his right hand, grew increasingly angry, especially with the press's constant discussions about what happened. He felt he had to remain in Washington and fight for his reputation. He even went so far as to openly harass one of his detractors, Purged Secretary of the Treasury Samuel Ingham, until the man fled Washington scared for his safety. Eventually, all this talk about his personal life with his wife and his public career caused John Henry Eaton to explode. You know how people often say that you should write down what makes you angry to get it out of your system? Well, John Henry Eaton did that. But then he had it published in The Globe in September of 1831. And holy Mary, is it something. It takes up four columns per page for multiple pages. It's intense and dramatic. He says that he was warned not to take the cabinet position because although the accusations against his wife were false, quote, the enemies of the president would not fail to make a handle of it. He rips into purged cabinet members for slandering, quote, a mother with two innocent daughters whose good name was blended with her. It's really quite something. It didn't put out the embers of the societal fire. It actually instead kicked off a lengthy published retort from Calhoun. Luckily for pretty much everyone, John Henry Eaton did not release another tirade. Freed from the Petticoat Affair, the Jackson administration turned its eyes toward other fronts. The world only moves forward, and so eventually, people's attention was diverted elsewhere. Just like it took time for the Petticoat Affair slash Eaton Affair to fade away, it also took time for John Henry Eaton to give up on a political career. First, he attempted to return to his past life as a senator, but he lost. Then, President Jackson appointed him to be governor of the Florida Territory. As we already know, John Henry supported the Jacksonian policies embedded in the Indian Removal Act, and as such, he spent a lot of time in Florida pushing for the Seminoles to leave the area and move west. He failed, informed his successors back at the War Department that military action would be needed to force the Seminoles off of the land, and was out of the governorship just as the Second Seminole War was kicking off. Next up on the list was a bit of time as minister to Spain. This period was less exciting than I hoped it would be when I was learning about it. In 1840, after, well, not achieving much, now President Martin Van Buren called the Eatons back. John Henry was never granted a political post again. He practiced law and was successful. Margaret, who now really had no political standing at all, saw her life ease up as a result. She did, however, have family concerns. Her elder daughter, Ginger, married a member of the French political delegation. Then she moved to Europe with him and never looked back. Margaret's younger daughter, the one also named Margaret, married a Navy man. The couple had several children together, but both husband and wife passed away before they were grown. The children immediately went into the care of Margaret and John henry Eaton, their grandmother and step-grandfather. Soon it was just Margaret raising them because John Henry passed away in the fall of 1856. Any of the financial woes suffered in Margaret's first marriage were by now a thing of distant memory, as her second husband left her as a wealthy widow set for life. A few years later, Margaret married again. I know. Here's how it went down. At some point, Margaret enrolled her grandchildren in dancing lessons, where they studied under the instruction of a young Italian man named Antonio Bucciani. Dear listener, Margaret married him. That's right. Margaret, who was around 60, married Antonio the dancing instructor, who was over 30 years her junior. This was to be, according to an article published after her death years later, Quote, a matrimonial affair quite as remarkable, if not so brilliant, as her former matches. Before the wedding, she had taken care to have a contract put in place to protect her. And although, of course, tongues wagged, for a little bit, everything went along. After they'd been married a few years, which included a move to New York and Antonio manipulating Margaret into allowing him to have more and more money, the big drama came. Antonio ran away with Margaret's granddaughter, Emily. As they did so, they left his wife and her grandmother with little except mortification and a financially destroyed future. Antonio and Emily went to Italy, then later moved to Canada. Eventually, Margaret was granted a divorce. Antonio and Margaret's runaway granddaughter then married and continued to live together with their multiple children. The divorce didn't solve Margaret's financial woes. The 1870s saw her back in Washington, where she spent her declining years dictating her memoir and being dependent upon the kindness of her devoted grandson. Margaret passed away in November of 1879 and was buried in Washington's Oak Hill Cemetery, joining her favorite husband, John Henry Eaton. An obituary called her, quote, one of the best-known celebrities of the Capitol. (sighs) Okay, there ends our wild ride through the full arc of Margaret Eaton and the Petticoat Affair. I told you all that was messy. There's always more to learn, so you should definitely check footnotinghistory.com for my further reading suggestions. Thank you for joining me, and thank you Marietta for requesting this episode. It sure as hell was interesting. And one more thing, dear listeners, don't forget, the best stories are in the footnotes.